What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We've always tried to support our independent base as well because they're so important, not just to us, but to the overall consumer market. So Target took a chance on us early. We didn't succeed the first time we were in Target. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you wait, you launched in Target and then got booted? Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode People Want to Be Part of Something Bigger. My guest today might not be a household name, but the stuff his company makes is. It might be in your broom closet or next to your kitchen sink. And if it's not, you've likely seen it in Target or Whole Foods. He is the co-founder and CEO of Full Circle, a company that makes sustainable home goods like scrub brushes and brooms and towels. He started it with Heather Kaufman in 2009. Today, Full Circle also makes a brand of home disposables like compostable bags called For Good and Soma, a water filter and beverage system. The chief executive behind these three global and sustainably-minded brands is Tal Chitayat. I spoke with him about the complexities of setting up a company that is sustainable inside and out, that uses recycled materials and components that factories weren't familiar with, such as bamboo and cutting-edge bioplastics. But it also set itself up as a company for fast growth and success. We also talked about the importance of good design in sustainability and shifting the consumer perception over the past 13 years that using eco products meant sacrificing utility, longevity, value, or aesthetics. We also talked about money, the uncertainties of the global economy, the way he lean bootstrapped his startup, and how much the three arms of his company give back every year and what that means to his employees. But before Tal was overseeing three international brands out of New York City, he was the kid of New Zealander and Israeli parents growing up in Taiwan. As a child, I was very prone to being in the sales world. I remember when, when slap bracelets just came out, and they were like the hottest thing in elementary school. And mind you, this is in the late 80s, early 90s in Taiwan, where I grew up actually. My, me and my brothers got our hands on some wholesale. And then in third grade, I spent a couple of weeks selling them on the playground um, to kids that couldn't get them in the stores because they were all sold out. And I remember the school actually had to come and ask my parents to stop us because kids were literally you know, knocking on your homeroom door asking if they could purchase uh, one of these bracelets. And parents were not super happy about that. Um, you know, that kids were spending their money that way at school. And as you went through school, did you start other businesses? I know you you had a um, career before founding Full Circle, correct? That is correct. I did work in another startup before Full Circle, which really helped me, you know, sort of understand the world from that perspective. It was a retail uh, business in, in the shoe industry. 
prior to, to full circle, I was also, you know, in, in the supply chain world in the manufacturing world, working really to provide solutions for CPG companies in, in the product space. And so it was sort of a natural evolution to see a gap in the market coming from that world and say, okay, well, actually there's a lack of sustainability in product that needs to be solved for. So interesting. So you were you were sort of doing the same work, but for other brands before launching your own. What was the like tipping point for you? Or was there a moment where you said, I'm going to strike out on my own. I can do this better, or I can do this in whatever way you envisioned? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's funny to looking back now, the world is going through so much now. But at the time, this was right after the crash in 2007. And there had been advancements in, in material technology and in, in specifically in bioplastics. And it was, it was a really exciting time on the material front. I was living in Shanghai at the time and myself, along with Heather and, and actually... Um, Heather's your co-founder? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Heather is our co-founder. We always had an interest in sustainability. And you know there was a realization that brands, whether because of the economic situation, also just on timing with consumer you know, sentiment and focus on, on cost that they weren't really ready to introduce new alternatives to traditional plastics and didn't have really the long-term vision of, of what consumer demand would be in the space. And so really it was just a aha moment. I, mean, I think it was over Thanksgiving in Shanghai, but we, we were sitting down and it was just kind of like, this is the future. Consumer products are going to take a huge turn into sustainability because they have to, because people are, are going to demand it just like we are. We were in our 20s at the time and we were looking for alternatives. And, and also because the world just can't you know, afford to keep going down the path it was. And it was just a moment of like, this is not being focused on. We need to start a brand and we need to focus on providing sustainable alternatives to the products that we use every day. It really was um, sort of a moment where we all came together and we just said, this is something that we're all passionate about. You know, we each kind of bring something a little bit different to the table. Uh, myself really was on the product manufacturing side, really the supply chain. And Heather, you know, really on the marketing and the sustainability, really understanding a lot more about sustainability than I did at the time. And coming to the table and saying, this is something that's just gets all of us excited. We see a future here. It needs to be done. What was your first product? Was there an uphill battle to get these products produced, um, not just with sustainable materials, but be made sustainably too and create a company that lived the same values that you were selling to consumers? Absolutely. I mean, there, there were so many challenges starting out, right? I mean, from the very beginning, the manufacturing side certainly was a challenge. Um, it, however, it was what we knew, right? So it was where I was coming from. So on that side of things, although it was a challenge, it was also a challenge that was, I don't want to say easier to confront, but more logical. You know, it, it was really about following the materials where if we're using Tampico or if we're using bamboo or if we're using recycled plastics or bioplastics or, you know, any of the materials that we use. And I want to remember what we started with versus what we have today, because our, our breadth of material and where we manufacture today is so different from when we started. But, you know, on those first few products, it was really about explaining to the manufacturer, first of all, what the brand stands for, what we're trying to do, why these little things are important that they may not always focus on. 
you know, how close are the material suppliers to where the actual manufacturing is done? How are things manufactured? What are we doing with the waste that comes off the product? Um, how are those materials grown, et cetera, sourced? Are we aware of every part of the supply chain and everything that goes into it? And I think one of the challenges is, first of all, like getting people on board, letting them understand where we're coming from. One of the, the things that was amazing to see at that early stage, and this is 2008, is is how eager manufacturers were to learn to understand sustainability from the brand that's bringing them a product design to really learn and to be interested in changing things. Not everybody, you know, and and there are some people that you had to walk away from, but there were so many manufacturers that really were excited about doing things differently, which I don't think everybody always assumes. That was a very interesting discovery. How did you kind of set out with the calculus in place about, you know, because it was ostensibly important to get your products into the hands of lots of consumers um, to kind of gradually shift consumer mindset toward sustainable products, keep those margins relatively, you know, in a comfortable place so that the price point on the products wasn't too high, but yet make them as sustainably as possible and, and with the best materials possible. How did you kind of mentally balance that and, and in actuality balance it? There was a learning curve. It was, I think, you know, when you first start out, you assume everybody understands the vision that you've brought to the table without you needing to really explain it to them. There's just an inexperience there in starting out and, and definitely distribution and sales on, on, you know, in the United States was, was something that was totally new to us. It was new to me. I think in the very beginning, it's, it's funny because consumers have changed so much since we launched. And in the very beginning, there was a much larger focus on cost uh, of individual products. So, you know, we decided from an early stage that the brand had to be accessible. It didn't make sense to bring sustainable solutions to the home care world or to any of the consumer products that we produce if they weren't accessible. It doesn't mean they're the cheapest, but they're certainly not the, the most expensive. They're accessible, they're more durable, therefore, you know, it, it, you know, there is a value, an intrinsic value in what we're trying to bring to the market. You know, I think in the beginning, you know, sustainability, there was an assumption around sustainability that for some reason you were sacrificing something. You know, that was the, the biggest education piece that we, we had to focus on. And, and, you know, the food industry saw the same thing, I think, you know, really about being organic or sustainable meant that you were sacrificing taste or quality. We saw that as well in consumer products that, you know, a cleaning brush couldn't be as effective as the plastic alternative if it was sustainable. That somehow, you know, in order to be a, a greener product, you had to be giving up something that in reality was just driven by cost, which was, with you know, manufacturing with traditional plastics, cost and ease. But, you know, everything changes, you know, materials change, technology changes, and we're able to really offer a better product. And that's the true value proposition to say, actually, we're bringing you a better product designed to not just work better, but look better be accessible and you know at the same time take sustainability into account that was a big challenge but that was really the the essence of the opportunity it's very interesting to see the other the other um, industries that had to do that as well and I think you know definitely adjacent to us cleaning solutions was was one of those that really had to do it where the assumption was that you couldn't use a soap that was 
sustainable because that would be a worse soap. It's great to see now like our peers in different industries kind of all, we all kind of tackled those same challenges. Um, and today, I don't think that assumption exists, which is great. It's been a huge change, right? I, I guess now what comes to mind when I think of, you know, very sustainable goods is almost like a luxury, right? It's like the the folks who can afford to live sustainably are spending more money, you know, and 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 it's such an interesting shift from from fifteen or twenty years ago. But yeah, your products, you have a dish brush that's very sturdy and well-designed, a very cute little, I don't know, do you call it a hand broom or a a, a small, like a whisk broom? I don't know. <laughs> the tiny thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and it's um, it's kind of an iconic little circle handle on it. And um, these products are some of your best sellers. Um, have those been around for a while now or, or are those relatively new ones? Those have been around. There's definitely, you know, I, you know, I won't necessarily speak to the products that are not around, anymore, but <laughs> the ones that are around, I still love them. It doesn't mean that everybody else did, but yeah, a lot, of, a lot of those products are definitely still around. You know, some of the first products we launched are still some of the best sellers. You know, it's very different today. I think we launched ten products to start, and then today, you know, of course, we offer hundreds of, of different uh, SKUs. But um, some of those ten products absolutely are still some of our best sellers. And I think it speaks to the uniqueness in design. We're talking about design. We're talking about designing sustainably, designing your supply chain, um, your manufacturing. Now, what might be shocking is that this was 2008, um, you know, kind of at the beginning of the resurgence of Silicon Valley and the boom of venture capital funding. Now, you guys did not have your bank accounts filled with venture capital at this point, right? How did you go about funding everything? Yeah, you're completely right. I mean, we decided to run really lean. We decided to bootstrap, um, which, I, you know, I don't want to gloss over. There is a privilege in that, in being able to do that. That being said, it wasn't done with a tremendous amount of funds. So, I, you know, and, and it's it's funny how much the world has changed and sort of maybe come back a little bit. But, you know, I think we saw the crazy world of funding have incredible pros as well as negative effects when it came to expectations being put on an organization. Um, and we didn't really want to be held to a ever-changing world of expectation that maybe you would never be able to meet. That and being really able to see our vision through and adapt how we needed to quickly. But, you know, there was a lot of sacrifice in starting a business that way. It meant that and I'm not saying that, you know, people that don't bootstrap don't work incredibly hard. If anything, there's there's just a, a difference in the kind of startup focus, I think. You know, for us, it was everything was done by ourselves. I mean, I, you know, I remember when we started this business, Heather and I would work in, we started the company in New York, you know, left Shanghai and, and you know, we would work out of cafes. Then before, you know, the world of WeWork, we, we shared an office. We didn't share an office, we shared a desk in a shared office space where, you know, we literally, you know, would have to like kind of just put our heads down so that the sheer noise and chaos around us, and they weren't very nice working spaces, you know, <laughs> and, and, and our first trade show, you know, we got straight off a flight and we literally had to build our own tiny little trade booth, on, you know, in, in the corner of, of McCormick without the approval of the Teamsters who, because we couldn't afford to hire them. And so we'd have to like, kind of like, hide and build parts of it when they weren't, you know, where people weren't watching. Which, Wait, so everyone else had hired the Teamsters to set up their booths? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to. And, and for us, it was like, it was anything that we could do to cut costs, but still get in front of the clients that we needed to, you know. 
you just had to hustle. Yeah, absolutely. And were those trade shows the way you got onto the first store shelves that you worked with? Yeah, absolutely. That was the only way we could, you know, happen to get a Crate and Barrel or you know, Bed Bath & Beyond or, or somebody, or, you know, really who we were focused on in the beginning was independence. Mm-hmm. To walk by us, see how different our products were, understand what we were doing, touch and feel. It's always been, you know, our biggest focus has been getting product into people's hands. You know, if you, if you truly are proud of a product, if it truly is what you believe it to be, it's about as many people touching it, looking at it, feeling it, using it. That was our focus. And it does take a while, but they certainly helped us. It may have been slow going the first couple of years, but Full Circle has been on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing companies in the United States, uh, what, seven times now? Eight. Eight Eight times. times. So you, I mean, you certainly hit an inflection point and it just didn't stop. Um, What was the point where your growth really got jump-started and really kind of took off? There was a period that we went a little bit from from niche to being truly you know available on a much larger platform and you know i think that's that's right around when consumers started really demanding a different level of responsibility sustainability from the brands that they they shop and you know there's a lot of retailers that took a chance on us that brought us to a place where we could really get in front of a much larger customer base. What was like the biggest first one? One of the people that took a chance on us early certainly was the container store. They really saw the design, saw the aesthetic, you know, their their customer was right. That was definitely a a store that just leaned into what we were doing. Whole Foods certainly did as well. Um, you know, I don't want to leave out the amount of like, you know, just just incredibly important independence also that really, you know, sort of independence are not just important because they provide such a service to communities around the country, but they, they also are, you know, it's ironic. They're, they're also what certain retailers aspire to, right? Because they're so intimately familiar with their hyper-focused, you know, consumer base, the independent market is really what propelled us. We've always tried to support our independent base as well, because they're so important, not just to us, but to, to, to the overall, you know, consumer market. So Target took a, took a chance on us early. We didn't succeed the first time we were in Target. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So you wait, you launched in Target and then got booted? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly what happened. Um, it was like our biggest celebration and then one of our largest challenges to get over, for sure. What happened there and and how did you get kind of over that hump? One of the things about consumer products that I think I didn't understand, at least uh, going into to the business on the early stages, you know, was the importance of packaging, right? Uh, design. Not to say we didn't put a ton of effort in, we did. We just didn't really know um, what we were doing. So our first iterations of packaging, you know, really were beautiful, but it was literally like an essay written on why the product is good, you know, where this material comes from, you know, what the end of use process is for every part of the product, Um, you know, what we stand for, uh, you know, every use and care. And it was just, it was just this incredible. Like a Dr. Bronner style uh, essay. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But when you're shopping for, you know, a vegetable brush or a mop or broom, you're not necessarily going to stop in the aisle at at your local supermarket and start reading an essay um, about how you spend your $4. So there definitely was a challenge there. And so we launched, you know, we launched early at Target. You know, they, they took a chance on us, arguably probably before they should have. 
not because it was bad judgment, but necessarily because it was just, um, we weren't necessarily there yet. And maybe the consumer wasn't either. And so it worked out okay. Um, but it wasn't the right products, wasn't the right packaging. And, and it, the timing wasn't necessarily right as well. But it was a big learning experience for us. Uh, it was really about, you know, today it's funny because we're on our fifth iteration of packaging. Obviously, our SKU count has grown tremendously. And we understand a lot more about your product today than, than you did when you first started. I was going to say, some of that language is like back on the packaging, right? I noticed recently there's a note about where the 1% of the proceeds go for every item, every at least the new ones. Um, and and a lot of your packaging is recycled and recyclable. I noticed that you have a pretty audacious set of goals around plastics recently. I'd love to talk to you about that by the end of this year, not five years from now, but this year, 2022, you want to have no plastics in your packaging. Is that right? Yeah, actually, almost all of our packaging today, with the exception of a couple products, already are plastic free. I don't know that that may not sound like a huge challenge, but actually it, it's a massive undertaking because even the substrates of paper that people use 99% of the time in, in, you know, in, in your store are coated with plastic down to the tie, you know, the zip tie or, or all of those little pieces. And yeah, it adds up to a lot. I mean, we're talking about hundred thousand products a week, you know, that are being sold. And that is a, a tremendous amount of plastic, small pieces that end up in landfills, in our water systems and, is incredibly important. It's not just the product, it's it's the package and it's the delivery system and how the product gets to the store um, or to the consumer. So that absolutely has been a, a undertaking that our uh, product development team has been very, very focused on. So today, none of our uh, paper has plastic on it or any plastic coatings. Uh, all those small pieces have been swapped out. We're in the midst of the transition today right now. That, as well as the fact we have three brands, Full Circle being uh, our largest, but Full Circle is a plastic neutral company. We work with Plastic Bank. So even though we're using um, certified, for the most part, post-consumer recycled plastics in, in some of our products where we haven't been able to replace them, all of that is then offset as well by the plastic that we collect out of the waterways. Yeah. And so you work with an organization to do that. How long have you been doing that? And do you have any advice for other business owners about how to become plastic neutral or how to offset some of that plastic use? I mean, I know a lot of people think about becoming carbon neutral and there's a lot of different ways to kind of do that. And there's also a lot of sort of gibberish that's spoken around <laughs> those things. How can you actually kind of ensure that you're you're offsetting your use of plastics um, and, and that you're getting, you know, your recycled plastics are coming from a, a clean source and are truly being sourced in the right way? It definitely is a, you know, I think that's the key is that it's a process. I think focusing on the fact that it's a process and that there, you know, if there aren't solutions available, it's about making incremental changes in order to get to a better place. And so our point of view is number one is to replace plastics when we don't need to use them, right? That's why you see so much bamboo in, in some of our handles. You see um, materials like cellulose or walnut shells or coconut where we can use, you know, natural abrasives or loofah. There are all sorts of natural materials that are, are extraordinarily renewable that you can replace with. 
That being said, there are definitely limitations, right? And you constantly need to be making those changes. And there are some things, plastic is an amazing material, right? It's why it's so widely used. It's affordable and it can be made into anything, right? That if you cannot find that alternative, there are better ways to supply your plastic, right? So you know, we work on the global recycling standard, certifying any of the recycled plastics that we use to make sure we know exactly where they're coming from. And that is a very important part of our process that when we do use plastics, we use as little as possible and we ensure that they are actually not virgin. The last part of that is then offsetting those plastics that you do use. And it's not just about offsetting your own. It's also about offsetting, you know, um, plastics that are being introduced to the world. We work with Plastic Bank, which is an awesome organization, which also provides employment in communities around the world to actually pay people to remove those plastics from their ecosystems. And that's really just an amazing way of approaching the problem. We are providing home care products for people around the country and the world. And it is a process of continuously trying to improve, finding solutions, finding new materials, working with suppliers so that they can access um, not just our brand and manufacture for us, but also manufacture for other brands in our space or different spaces. No simple way of answering it, but it's the process that's really about focus on because that's what's going to really just create change that lasts. Yeah, keep on it, right? Like keep tweaking the the system that you're working with as well as the product. So you you mentioned you have three different lines of products, including the new-ish for good. Um, you mentioned when we were speaking earlier that, you know, you, you guys try to kind of meet consumers where they are. Um, and one thing I've noticed about my own behavior lately is I, I really want to avoid plastic bags. Um, so I've been trying to buy compostable um, snack bags for my kids or or whatnot. But there hasn't been like you can't buy a garbage bag that is compostable. But you have one now, right? You have like a yeah. big compostable bag. Absolutely. Does it work? Does it actually hold the trash? <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised how much <laughs> testing has to go into a garbage bag. But I mean, as anybody knows, if you've ever bought a bag that you weren't satisfied with, you probably only buy it once. And it's because it causes kind of a big disaster in your kitchen after you've used it. And that is the problem. Again, you know, plastics are amazing, right? So when you're trying to find alternatives or petroleum-free products, there is a trial and error. And and sometimes you're trying to be as good as, right? Because it's hard in that world. For Good is the brand that we launched. Um, And it's all about saying there's a convenience to disposables that we cannot deny, right? There is going to be a long time before people are going to be able to remove them from their daily lives. That's fine. It's the responsibility of brands like us to bring alternatives to the market so that you can still choose a better cling wrap, right? You can still choose a better baking sheet or a better zip, uh, Ziploc bag or a better. You're not supposed uh, to use a brand name, I'm guessing, based on your (laughs) (laughs) pause there. If your name becomes ubiquitous with the product, you know, you can't complain. Uh, But, you know, and I think, you know, or or a garbage bag, you know, or even aluminum foil, you know, which is not compostable, but at least, you know, you, you should know where the material originates from. Full Circle was really all about trying to sort of introduce new materials, some new behaviors you know, into a world of product like cleaning and home care that maybe was a bit ignored. For good is is really about saying, 
you may not have to change your behaviors in order for you to still have a, a less of an impact on the world. When we come back, I'll talk to Tal about the importance of using profits to give back. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Each of your three brands, um, you know, aside from having a mission just baked into its existence, also does charitable giving. Can you talk about that a little bit? And and also about how that sort of, um, I don't know, became more important to your staff and evolved during the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we have three brands, uh, uh, Four Good and Full Circle, as I mentioned, and Soma, of course, is the third, which is um, all about bringing the same thing um, that we do at Full Circle, but to the hydration, filtration, coffee and tea world. And each brand actually partners with a different organization, um, which is great. I mean, that's a great way for us to have an impact in different areas that we, you know, that we believe need to, you know, Plastic Bank, as, as mentioned, for Full Circle. Charity Water is our partner um, for Soma. And Rethink Food is our partner in uh, For Good. And each one is, you know, one focus, of course, on water supply and communities that don't have clean access to water. Um, plastic Bank on our plastics. In the ecosystem and rethink, which is all about um, access to nutritional food in underserved communities um, around the United States. Three very different organizations, both in reach and focus, but so important in their own right. Right, and it's pretty amazing to be able to not just introduce to our team, and it is so important to our team to be a part of something bigger than selling products to people. Is you know saying the more we do. The better we get, the, the the more successful we are, the more we can contribute, right? And it's baked in on each of those brands, a percentage of our sales. We don't do it because of recruiting, right? We do it because actually it's something that we always believed that would make us enjoy our, our roles and our company and our work so much more. But it's also, you know, something that's just so important to people today looking at their careers, and that's something that just accelerated so much with COVID, actually, is that belief that there is a greater social responsibility tied to your profession possible. And that has been so important. And, you know, and during the pandemic, we sort of said, OK, like, despite everything that's happening, we really we want to be there for our community and uh, contribute what we could, you know, especially as our brand was blessed with being successful during the pandemic. So many people were cleaning and so many people were staying home and that, you know, for us, it was so important to also give back. And we did with organizations like God's Love We Deliver, or Battery Residence Committee, or, you know, Battery Mission, City Harvest. So these are local to New York City organizations that um, I'm guessing were, just, were important to your employees and were important to your community. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Um, and, and one's outside also at the church, Children's Miracle Network. I mean, it, you know, for us, I think it was just about, you know, trying to give back when everything was so crazy. And yeah, you know, I, I think it changed us in a way to, to bring us closer to our community a bit. 
and feel a bit of responsibility for what happens. Yeah. So your 2020 was really good and you're still sort of like catching up from that (laughs) since, right? But this other thing happened during the pandemic, which was the global supply chain disruption and crunch. And we have not recovered from that. And it's not looking like there will be any kind of normalcy anytime soon. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage the supply chain globally for your three brands and has the pandemic changed your thinking about it at all or have other brands been coming to you to ask for advice like what's going on there and what what do people need to know for the future to make a more sustainable supply chain yeah i mean it's certainly a different world out there and i think the key thing is that we have not settled yet you know the the future is a little bit unclear in terms of how things are going to shake out in the global supply infrastructure, right? Not just from shipping, but manufacturing, location, total cost structure around consumer products um, is sort of been thrown into a blender. And we're kind of just trying to guess how everything's going to come out. Yeah, I I do think, yeah, and I do speak to a lot of my, you know, peers as well uh, about this in similar industries or a bit different, even in the, in the world of manufacturing. You know, I, I think number one is, you know, is about setting expectations. Like, right, I mean, we cannot think that things are going back to normal anytime soon. Um, so trying to adjust your inventory expectations, your retailer or wholesale brand partner expectations, as well as, you know, just trying to really adapt quickly, right? I mean, that's one of the, the hardest things is, is trying to see what's happening and then quickly in a fairly long lead environment, trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to prepare ourselves six months down the road, one year down the road, two years down the road to the changes that are happening now. It's been tough. You know, it, it, it has been tough. We are definitely blessed with having, you know, a strong manufacturing side capability, but especially in the sustainability world, you know, we don't just manufacture in one location, right? We, we produce in the United States, Canada, we, you know, we produce a little bit in Europe, certainly, and of course, in Asia, um, in China, as well as other places in, in Asia. And it's difficult, you know, we at, at this point have scale, so we can manage of, you know, that, that type of, you know, manufacturing geography, but it is very difficult for a smaller brand to do so. And when you're looking at sustainable materials, it is so important to be able to work with the right material suppliers in the right countries. And that has really, you know, just been so clear with everything that's happened is that diversified manufacturing is, you know, a necessity. Yeah, I mean, I would ask you, you know, are you going to bring more manufacturing to the United States to to Mexico to closer? But you also sell products all over the world now. So <laughs> it's a very complicated uh, set of equations. No, you know, by, by far the U.S. is our biggest market, and 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 I do think you know we certainly are trying to bring back or bring manufacturing. A lot of these types of products may never have been manufactured here, but absolutely. I mean, especially in terms of closeness to our distribution, you know, proximity to distribution. Absolutely, uh, the United States, Canada, Mexico, and you know, uncertainty with shipping has has also driven that a great deal. In looking at the world, and this might have come with my background living around the, the world and being from you know, all sorts of different places, kind of a big mix, that I think the most important thing is to manufacture products 
you know, where they make sense from great manufacturers uh, with great materials that you can track from responsible manufacturers, right? And if that can be here, that's great. If for certain materials and products, it makes sense to be out of Spain because that's a specialty, you know, or Portugal because of cork, for example, you know, it's like the, the number one cork. You're never gonna manufacture probably better products out of cork than Portugal. There, there are hyper-specialized manufacturers and geographies that you'll always have. And it's so important to know that and be able to work with those. But we're constantly looking at new places to manufacture. And if those can be close to home, then that is fantastic. How many places in the world have you lived? You do have an interesting background. And do you think that's informed your, I don't know, the global viewpoint that your your company had kind of brings? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think so. I, I, I grew up in Asia. Uh, I've lived in you know New Zealand, where I'm partially from. My mother's from New Zealand. I know I've lived in the United States, of course, uh, as well as around Asia. I think there's a practical sense to part of my upbringing is that I, you know, I grew up in where everything was being manufactured. And so I saw that side of things and how things could maybe be improved. And then I grew up where everything was being consumed. Which is not, you know, in, in the United States. Yeah, you States. sound like a New Yorker to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in the United States, right? And and kind of coming from both sides of it and seeing, you know, sort of, I don't want to say problems, but challenges with consumption, with overconsumption, as well as challenges with, with manufacturing and what it was doing to the places that were sort of the manufacturing hubs of the world, kind of gave a perspective to both sides of the equation. And you cannot improve the products you sell in, in the West without improving where they're manufactured. You can't improve the places that you're manufacturing without sort of having a better awareness on consumption in in places like the United States. So I I do think they tie together. That being said, absolutely. You know, my background, I'm from all over the place. I have roots from South Africa, New Zealand, Iraq, Israel, Taiwan, all over the world. And, And I think that it brings, you know, seeing ideas and materials and and things that are you know tastes and all from all over the world and and just kind of being able to use that to inspire design and and the products we put out i think is has definitely served us and you know i think a lot of our our team also has that experience certainly heather our co-founder um you know we met in the united states but then ended up both living in china that has played a big part in this as well great well tal thank you so much for joining me today thank you After speaking with Tal, what stuck with me is that he's built his company with sustainability in mind, inside and out. It's not just about selling the toilet brush made out of bamboo, metal, and ceramic rather than plastic. It's that he bootstrapped a company set out to support itself and to grow to be an ever-increasing force of good in the world. He said, it is so important to our team to be part of something bigger than selling products to people but also that the more successful we are, the more we can contribute. He's built in not just sustainability, but a social mission to each of his three brands. And he knows that it's important not just to consumers, but to his team members who love that there's an actual social responsibility directly linked to their profession. And being part of something bigger, that's something everyone wants and every company should too. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. 
I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. And please, if you're a loyal listener, leave us some stars or a review. We love to hear what you think. Our producer, who is also deeply concerned with the aesthetics of dish brushes, is Joshua Christensen. Blake Odom is our production assistant, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. Thank you.